Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me on this spiritual journey as we uh, learn the faith uh, through the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And uh, I'm blessed that I have uh, a large selection of Archbishop Sheen's recordings, and a number of those recordings come from the retreats he gave to priests. Uh, Now, what I've found is that uh, they offer an insight that I think is second to none because, you know, we look to our priest and many of our ministers to help us and guide us in this spiritual journey, Uh, but it's nice to understand, you know, how priests think and uh, what they experience. Of course, they are trying to imitate Christ. They're trying to be this Alta Christus. And um, again, it's, um, it's a job that um, God calls uh, men to. And of course, we need to pray for them, especially because it's a big calling. Yet, Fulton Sheen, I think when I listen to his priestly retreats, uh, it helps me and it's helped many of my friends because uh, in a way, I think through our baptism, uh, we take on this um, calling as priest, prophet, and king. Again, these are gifts that we receive, uh, you know, when we are baptized, that uh, we start to live, you know, uh, I want to say a priestly uh, existence, of course, a prophet and king. Uh, again, and these are graces given to us through baptism. So uh, to listen to these talks from a priest retreat uh, will help you as you minister to your friends and family members. Uh, This reflection that I've chosen today is on preaching. And it's not just on preaching, but it's on counseling. And um, I know many of us will have to counsel people over the years. And so uh, you'll get some timely tips from Fulton Sheen during this talk. And may I stress once again the importance that uh, to pray for our priest um, because they have um, this great burden on their shoulders to help bring souls to Christ. And so, uh, again, let us not let a day go by where we don't pray for our priest. And so may I invite you, as I always do each week, to just sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he speaks to us on counsel and preaching. Please enjoy. As the world becomes more secular, those offices which once belonged to us are gradually taken over by the secular world. In the missions, there were no hospitals until we started hospitals. 
There were no schools. Not very long ago, in the Parliament of Ghana, someone had introduced a bill to do away with mission schools. One of the members of the Parliament said, Is there anyone here in this Parliament who was not educated in a mission school? And at that time, there was not a single member who had not been trained either in the Protestant or Catholic school. Now the world is taking these works over, and I'm not going to get into that point, but I think that we should be starting new works, not be doing the same things that we were. I'm not so much referring here to, to education, because this is our primarily our mission, but to other areas which we will not enter into. One, however, that is worth mentioning is the fact that as we have given up spiritual direction, psychiatry has taken over. Entry into our rectories was very easy as everyone in the parish came to consult the pastor. Now they go to a psychiatrist or to a psychoanalyst, or to a psychologist. And there's a world of difference between the three. They are paid for listening. We are not paid for listening. One of the great blessings of living in our age is that we have so much scientific advance in all fields, and particularly in the field of psychotherapy and counseling. There are very marvelous studies in this field and many universities have courses on counseling. However, many of them follow moods for a time and they will be dictated at one period of time, for example, by Freud and another period of time by Erickson. Then these are dropped there does not seem to be, however, a permanent pattern of counseling. Many of our priests and religious like to go into counseling, which is good. It's just simply a manifestation of the, I suppose, of what is basic in our vocation, namely saving souls. So what we have to say about counseling now is not in any way to cast dispersions upon counseling. You should have a very good library on it. And incidentally, there are about 15 or 20 books edited by, by Dix, published by Appleton, I believe, on counseling. There's also an English series, which I think is even better. And every single phase of counseling is contained in these books. The first volume is particularly good, namely The Theology of Counseling, written by a chaplain of St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in Washington. Really is necessary to go away to study if one would use these two in small encyclopedias. Actually, they come in very small books. But... I am concerned more with ourselves as counselors. I think I already mentioned that I made a survey 
some years ago of Catholic books on counseling, and no one ever mentioned the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what we're up against. This is serious. Our counselors are not necessarily spiritual men. They're not very close to Christ, some of them. Therefore, they're apt to do more harm than good because they are priests. They're like to be, they may be like Gehazi. Remember old Gehazi in the Old Testament? He was the servant of the great prophet Eliah. And an old woman asked that her son who had died be brought to life. The prophet sent Gehazi and said, here's my staff. And this is the staff that will restore anyone to life. You take it and use it. Gehazi went. He could do nothing with it. He just didn't have the spirit. And so we have a number of counselors who have all the tools. All of them. All of the techniques and all the methods and they can do nothing with them. The prophet himself had to eventually to go. Then remember in the in the Acts of the Apostles, the seven sons of Scava. These seven sons of this Jewish rabbi, Scava, had taken over exorcism. They became it. They were the first psychotherapists of the early Christian church. And the seven sons exorcised complexes and psychoses and neuroses of people. And they did it in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. That was the way they made their exorcism. When they pronounced this exorcism, the devil that was driven out or was spoken to said to the seven sons of Scava, Jesus we know, Paul we know, who are you? And they turned on the seven sons of Scava, tore off their clothes, mauled them, and sent them out the worst for wear. And so uh, those who are trained very often scientifically, they will use Christian words, and they will say that they are Christian psychotherapists, but the devils and the complexes on the inside know very well that they are not. There is a spirit of counsel. It is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We should pray every day for the gift of counsel. When I was ordained, I took a resolution to ask the Holy Spirit every day for the gift of counsel in order that I might direct properly those who came to see me. Then one gets into the attitude when anyone brings a problem. The very beginning one invokes the Holy Spirit. What am I going to say? Teach me to say the right thing. As priests, we should never indulge in any kind of counseling unless we have the Spirit of Christ. We're better off without it.
And that's why the burden of this retreat is let's get back to something fundamental. Let's be priests. Get back to Christ. Have his spirit. We'll talk about spirit in the next conference during Mass. Have his spirit. Then we can counsel. Then we can direct. And then we can guide. And they will love us. Now, the rules of counseling are not too difficult. One of, the, one of the finest books to start studying counsels is the book of Job. Because here's a man who really has a problem. I tell you, here he loses all of his property, he loses all his sons, he loses his daughter, he loses his camels, he loses his sheep. And the only thing that he's got left is Mrs. Job. And she says, curse God and die. So three counselors come. They're wonderful men. They're mostly theological counselors, though not altogether theological counselors. But they try to find reasons why Job is afflicted. See, they are outside of Job. No identification with him. He must have done something wrong. Must have been a sinner. And so they all throw moral and aesthetical theologies at Job. And Job has no patience for them all. And Job says, I've heard all this before. What sorry comforters you are. Is there never to be an end to weary words? What a plague your need to have the last word is. I too could talk like you were your soul in the plight of mine. I, too, could overwhelm you with sermons. I could shake my head over you and speak words of encouragement until my lips grew tired. But while I am speaking, my suffering remains. You're not helping me with all your reasons. Now, these three comforters who were silent for seven days before they started speaking, and then they couldn't stop talking, We're finally joined by another, Elihu, who began to use the right approach. In other words, identification. We are not apart from anyone that comes to see us. Their problem is our problem. And Elihu has this sense. For Elihu says in... We read in chapter 33 of Job. See, I am your fellow man, not a god. Like you, I was fashioned out of clay. God's breath it was that made me, the breathing of Shaddai that gave me life. Thus no fear of me need disturb you. My hand will not lie very heavy on you. 
How often if we go to a doctor, we are about to have an operation, and he says, I've had that operation. We're already consoled. Sinners come to us. We're not sinners in front of them. In our own hearts, we know we are. Probably worse than those who come to us. But we set ourselves apart. Now, what Elihu does, if you read him carefully, is, and this is always a good rule in counseling, is always to restate what the counselee said. One, you listen. You have to listen, listen, listen. And bite your tongue a thousand times as they go on. And then restate what they said. First of all, that gives them confidence that you understand. And secondly, it gives you an opportunity, gives them an opportunity to correct you if you're wrong. I once had a rather delightful experience. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the characters in the story. When I first went to Rochester, I wasn't there a week when Fight, this militant black organization, wanted to see me. They were headed by Minister Florence. And I heard the chancellor on the phone. Now, it's important to know that I just come. I didn't know the problem, except I had heard about them. I knew I was going to be confronted with them. And I heard him on the phone say, well, he's busy now. He just got in. Maybe if you call next week. And I said, who is this? He said, Minister Florence, the fight. And so I got on the phone. And I said, will you come over for dinner? What? Do I come over for dinner? I said, yes, come over for dinner now. He said, wait, I'll ask. It was interesting. He came back and said, I'll come over at 8 o'clock. I said, all right. So 12 black men marched into the office. Headed by Minister Florence, I reached out my hand to shake hands with him. He refused. Pulled back. Straight. Wouldn't speak. The other men were rather civil. So he sat down and for an hour abused Christianity, abused the church, abused me. And the problem, the problem was, was actually with Eastman Kodak. So he took out his abuse for almost an hour and I said, now I want to be sure that I understand you, so let me let me tell you your case as I understand it. And so I summarized it in about ten minutes. Well, he was so pleased, he thought this was my position. He'd forgotten that he'd been stating this except in very vehement language. He found it now much better expressed than he'd ever said. And he, he, he reached out his hand over the desk, shook hands with me now for the first time, and said, yes, you understand, this is wonderful. So we got along beautifully from that point on. The great value of a restatement. Then in the, in, in dealing then with people, too, 
not, not only do we listen and restate and, and never moralize, because remember that they have rejected already moralization. That's why many of them are in the problems they are. Therefore, we only create more antagonism by reaffirming the moral. But we, we try to indulge in a conversation with them and always on three bases, the past, the present, and the future. That's always a good rule to keep in mind. Begin asking them questions about the past. Remember how St. Paul went through that and said, in times past I persecuted the church. Then the present, and he tells the story about the life that he received. Present is the is a decision. What about the present? Then the future. What kind of commitment and so forth are you going to make? By revolving our questions around these three temporal aspects, we very often succeed in bringing them out. But the point is to bring out of the counselee self-knowledge, sometimes even self-conviction. And then to pray with them. It's something we, we hardly ever do when people come to see us, is pray. If you want to get some very excellent ideas on counseling and, and good material for sermons and everything else, read Paul Tournier's works. Paul Tournier is, I think, the most Christian psychiatrist that there is in the world. He's a... He's a Calvinist, Swiss Calvinist. Almost all of his books, about eight or ten of them, are translated into English. For example, the meaning of person, the person in the broken world, race and guilt, Bible cases, and psychiatry. And he tells of... Uh, it tells two or three incidents just in passing. He... Uh, without any fanfare, he doesn't suggest any such thing as prayer, but he, he tells us that this particular person who came, came into, into a psychiatric office, and, and he said, so we prayed over it, and we got an answer. And it is surprising how much, once we pray sincerely, not just formal prayer, but we make up our prayer for that particular occasion, how much it helps us. And he said that very often at night he would feel the various mental disturbances that he had treated in the day. It was a Dr. Ron Colley of Italy who said that he used to feel physically some of the diseases that he would treat. So much was he identified with the patient. One of the uh, converts that, uh, that I had was a communist lawyer. She was the she was the lawyer of the communists of New York State and practically delivered over the education of New York City at one time to the Communist Party. And she was before the American Investigating Committee and the Senator McGrath said to her, why don't you go up and see Dr. Sheen about communism? He knows it. She said, well, so do I. Why should I talk to him? He said, you're afraid. So she took the challenge and He phoned me and said she was coming. And I just talked 
glittering generalities for a few moments, and then I said to her, Dr. Dodd, you, you look rather unhappy. She said, why do you say that? I said, I don't know. I don't know why. I said, physicians sometimes can look at people and they can divine reasons, or rather divine what is wrong with them, and I said, I suppose we priests get into that mentality too, but I just got the impression that you were very unhappy. So I said, why don't you come in the chapel with me? So I brought her in the chapel, and she began to cry. It was the beginning of the conversion of Dr. Dodd. So apropos of all of the counselors and continuing the book of Job, at the end, and this is something that should be inscribed often in the, the walls of all the psychotherapists. Remember Job? Job asks all kinds of questions. Why was I born? Why, did I, why was I ever nestled at my mother's breast? Why did I ever see the light of day? And on and on the why, why, why. You see, there is no answer to evil except that God came into this earth and took it. That's the only answer there is. There is no other. So God appears on the scene. Well, if a Broadway dramatist were writing the book of Job, he would have had God answer all the questions. The universe would have clicked. What does God do? God asks Job questions. Where was thou born when I laid the foundations of the earth? Upon what are its bases grounded? Who laid the cornerstone thereof? Where is the hiding place of darkness? Out of whose womb came the ice? Frost from heaven who hath gendered it. Canst thou stop turning about the Arcturus? Canst thou make the evening star to rise upon the children of men? Canst thou send forth thy voice? And will thunders and lightnings go forth and come back to thee and say to thee, Here we are. And when God finished asking Job questions, Job understood that the questions of God were more satisfying than the answers of men. And then he got back all that he had lost and more. And what does God say now to the psychotherapists, to all of the counselors? This is marvelous. God said to Job, as he turned now, he turned to Eliphaz, I burn with anger against you and your two friends for not speaking truthfully about me as my servant Job did. So now find seven bullocks and seven rams and take them back with you to my servant Job and offer a holocaust for yourself. While Job, my servant, offers prayers for you and I will listen to you. In other words, all the psychotherapists had to do penance for their sins. They had been giving very bad counsel. So to sum up counseling, for one could go on and on with this theme. As priests, we have to counsel in the name of Christ. St. Paul gives us rather good counsel in his 
Epistle to the Galatians. Brothers, if any one of you misbehave, the more spiritual of you who set him right should do so in a spirit of gentleness, not forgetting that you may be tempted yourselves. Very often today, one of the bad effects of counseling has been that first we admire the virtuous and then we begin to, the virtue and then we begin to love the virtuous. That's why we get very often entanglements of priests and nuns in our modern in our modern day, because we feel, well, they understand, uh, the other understands how guilty I am, and therefore, since we have the same guilt that we understand, and it's all right. You should carry each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. So we have to be very close to the good Lord to counsel anyone, because the mental diseases that they bring to us can infect us. And we have to be immunized, inoculated. We have to have the needle of the holy hour shot into us every day in order to protect ourselves from some of these wiles and snares of Satan. Then preaching. Here we are at the lowest ebb I suppose, in the history of the church. Those of you who are older can remember when we had many great preachers. We have none today. The sermons that we give on Sunday are positively a scandal. You can hardly go into a parish in which people are not talking about the sermons. We, and then, because we're not prepared, we moralize and condemn or else give a sociological sermon. Believe me, it takes a tremendous amount of time to preach a good sermon. And it does not come from the paper in. It comes from the spirit and the heart out. One, the type of sermon. If you keep in mind this principle, you will be guided. The modern man is not going to God through the order in the world. He's going to God through the disorder in himself. Hence, all the arguments about God from the order of the universe do not apply today. They are valid, but they do not have a relative value for the audience. People today are suffering from anxieties. What is an anxiety? An anxiety is a fear of losing something that we regard as a great value. And many of the values are false. There's frustration, there's sorrow, there's grief, there's, there, that, there's a whole train of discontentment that follows from egotism, and from the mad search for pleasure, and from the exaltation of le grand moi, the great ego. So we have to start with the problems of people. 
whatever these problems happen to be. It is what psychologists call working on an apperceptive man. You walk into a room where you know no one. It's difficult to become acquainted and you do not know how to proceed. If, however, you know one person in the room, through that one person you contact others, that person would be the apperceptive mass. And so you have to start with something that will immediately interest them. See how our Lord did that. He talks of, to the woman at the well about what? About water. He goes into the temple and sees this great golden candlestick, says, I am the light of the world. Feast of Tabernacles. Sees the water being poured out. And said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. St. Paul did the same thing. Your St. Paul had been down in the agora, the marketplace of Athens, and is invited now to the hill of the Areopagus, to the Senate. But on the way up, he passes the statues of 10,000 gods. There are still a thousand of them scattered about the streets of Athens. How does he begin this wonderful discourse? He said, I see you are religious men. For passing through your streets, I saw a statue to the unknown God. That God whom you know not is the God that I preach to you. So start with the problems of people. Start with their aspirations, their trials, their sorrows, whatever happens, they happen to be. And that is why a good reading about problems, particularly the books of Paul Tournier, will give you marvelous material for sermons. Secondly, a sermon has to be in the mind and in the heart. It has to be an overflow. And the overflow comes to meditation. The best place to prepare and the best way to prepare a sermon is in the holy hour. You're reading scripture and you look up the references for the gospel of the following Sunday. Think about it. Maybe make a little note here and there. And then because there'll be nobody else in the church when you are there, except maybe early in the morning. I, I heard of a new bishop when he went to a diocese uh, say to the uh, say to the priest, "I'll I will not visit you without phoning you, so I'll give you a chance to get up to the seventh station. So you'll have, you'll be alone, and you can walk up and down. You can walk up and down talking to the Lord." And if you do that for six days, on the seventh day, it will come out with fire. Now what, how make this hour, how, how prepare scripture? Well, there are so many books on scripture that one could overwhelm you with books. So I have, 
I make it a point to recommend only one. Only one. And I beg every priest, every priest in this diocese, to get these books that I recommend. I recommend the Bible studies of William Barclay. There are about 17 or 18 volumes in all for the whole New Testament. They cover, I think they're about 39.50 for all. But for the Gospels, those you should begin with. There are two volumes on Matthew, one on Mark, one on Luke, two on John. And then the rest for the epistles of Paul. I always carry Barclay with me whenever I travel. And so that what I'm reading to you today is just the volume that I happen to have. And I've picked out a few pages just to let you know how Barclay writes. Barclay is, a, I think, a Presbyterian. He died about four or five months ago. Professor of, of Hebrew and Greek and Biblical Studies at the University of St. Andrews University, or Glasgow. He knows classical literature so well. He knows biblical history, Greek, Latin, and then he loves the good Lord. You may find here and there a little mistake in Barclay, but I tell you, you will not find as many mistakes in, in Barclay against the faith as you will find in three weekly Catholics, three Catholic weeklies. <laughs> I haven't alive. I don't you said say, Oh, he's a Protestant. Glory be to God. Who who made these lights? Did the Catholic make these bulbs that are shining down on the Blessed Sacrament? Some of these people love the good Lord far more than we do. They read the scriptures and they know the scriptures. But we cannot take the scriptures in the holy hour and and study them oven by ourselves. We need frosting on the cake. We do not have a sufficient background. We have to be spurred. And he is as good as any, better than most. Now, the one I just picked up this morning, with I marked a few passages, is chapter 7 of John, verses 53, 8, 8 to 11, or 53 to 58, and the beginning of... And verse 11, I repeat, chapter 7, verses 53 to 58, and verse 11. It's the story of our blessed Lord leaving the, uh, uh, going into the Garden of Olives. And notice what he does here. Our scriptures have always separated the last verse of uh, John 7, in the beginning of verse, or the last of verse, Seven, yes. In verse 8, the last of the verses is that everyone went into his own house. And the next chapter begins in all of our versions, but he went into the Garden of Olives. These two are meant to be together. What a contrast. Everyone went into his own home. Not our Lord. And this is the story of the woman taken in adultery. So for these five, six verses of Scripture, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 
ten pages. You will not find that many pages on every single ten verses of sacred scripture. And I'm not going to read all to you, but just to give you a sample. Now, here at the beginning, because there's a woman taken in adultery, he gives us the law of stoning. And he, he quotes Leviticus, quotes Deuteronomy, quotes the Midrash, uh, to show that the Jews were right in saying the woman should be stoned. Now I will read uh, ten lines on this page. When the scribes and Pharisees confronted Jesus with the decision, this decision, the dilemma into which they sought to put him was this. If Jesus gave the decision that the woman ought to be stoned, Two things followed. First, he would lose forever the name he had gained for love and mercy. And never again could he be called a friend of sinners. Second, if he recommended death, he would immediately come into collision with the Roman law, for the Jews had no power to carry out the death sentence on anyone. So that if Jesus said you must die, he must lose the love and devotion of the great mass of the ordinary people and he would become a criminal in the eyes of the Roman government. If Jesus gave the decision that the woman should be pardoned, it could immediately be said that he was teaching men to break the law of Moses. That he was condoning and even encouraging people to commit adultery. That was the trap in which the scribes and Pharisees sought to entrap Jesus. But Jesus turned their attack in such a way that it recoiled upon themselves. At first, he stooped down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Why did he do that? He gives four reasons. Taken from the fathers, we'll skip the four, three of them, and we'll come to the fourth. By far the most interesting suggestion emerges from later manuscripts. The Armenian translation of the New Testament translates the passage this way. He himself, bowing his head, was writing with his finger on the earth to declare their sins. And they were seeing their several sins on the stones. So you can imagine our blessed Lord leaning over and writing the word thief. One leaving. Another one, writing the word blasphemer, he leaves. Until there's only one left, and he writes adulterer. And he leaves. And incidentally, they all began leaving with the eldest. That's interesting. But maybe it's the older people that have a deeper conviction of sin. So, they left beginning with the eldest. Now, this suggestion is that Jesus was writing in the dust the sins of the very men who were accusing the woman. There may be something in this. The normal Greek word to write is graphine. But here in the Gospel of John, the word used is katagraphine, which means to write down a record against someone. Because kata in Greek is against. So in the book of Job we read, Thou writest bitter things against me. It may be that Jesus was confronting those self-confident Sadducees with the record of their own sins.
However that may be, the scribes and Pharisees continued to insist on an answer, and they got it. So Jesus said, all right, stone her. But let the man that is without sin be the first to cast a stone. It may well be that the word for without sin, anamaretetos, means not only without sin, but without even a sinful desire. So Jesus was saying, yes, you may stone her, but only if you never wanted to do the same thing yourselves. There was a silence, and slowly the accusers drifted away. So Jesus and the woman were left alone. As Augustine put it, there remained a great misery and a great pity. Miseria, misericordia. Jesus said to the woman, has no one condemned you? No one, she said. And Jesus said, I am not for the moment going to pass judgment on you either. Go and make a new start and sin no more. Now there are nine pages left on that text. That's the way Barclay reads. So never attempt to make a holy hour. Without a book, we do, we do, we do not have enough in ourselves. We have to eat three times a day. And the food we eat is from outside us. And even if we were great students, we just simply cannot come before the Blessed Sacrament and draw out of ourselves contemplation for an hour. We need to be provoked. We need to have the Spirit guide us. And by this, By this uh, daily holy hour and meditation, you will find that you will have material not only for Sunday sermons, but your counseling confession will be helped. And that's where real counseling is. That's where we help. No one should ever, ever leave a box with just an absolution. Never, never. And so, Father, these are just a few suggestions about counseling and about preaching. But the basic suggestion is the holy hour meditation. And I beg you, by Barclay. I gave a retreat in Far and I'm not in Fargo, in Fresno, not so long ago, and... Uh, it was a two-week retreat. At the end of the first week, I, I said to some priest, have you got a Protestant bookstore here in Fresno? Yes, he said, this absolutely be no good at all. Don't bother going into it. And uh, so I went down. It was really a magnificent store. Wonderful books. And, and I said, have you got Barclay? Yes. And uh, the woman sales lady said, something mysterious has happened this week. We got 45 orders from Barclay. We can't account for it. I said, I'm responsible. So get Barclay. If you don't like Barclay, write to me and I'll send you back your money. <laughs> and really you'll improve the tone of the diocese, the tone of preaching, and people will be saying, my, what happened to the clergy of Sacramento? And what happened to the clergy of Sacramento? You got near the sacrament. That's what happens. 
And then give them hope. Not the hope of Ernest Bloch, who started the theology of hope. Communists who live in East Germany and came to West Germany in order to write about hope and to tell us that the only hope for the world was in communism. And then he was followed by Moltmann, who wrote the theology of hope, who indeed Christianized it. But our hope is is based upon the crucified, risen Lord. This is the basis of our hope. Now, let me just summarize this hope very briefly, and then you think about it, and apply it in your holy hour, and apply it to your penitence. Just what does the resurrection mean to us? Yes, it's part of the creed. Suppose a judge is seated on a bench and before him in court is his own son who has been guilty of murder. The father judge is obliged to administer justice at the cost of mercy to his son. He sentences his son to death. Immediately after the sentence of death, he steps down and says to his son, I will take your punishment. This is vicarious offering. This analogy fails in one aspect because the father dies. Years ago, I believe it was around 1924, there was a famous murder trial in Chicago. Two young law students of the University of Chicago, simply because they had mastered all the techniques of criminal procedure, decided to create the perfect crime. In order that it might be a perfect crime, they decided to choose a boy at random, and they chose a young boy by the name of Franks, a wealthy boy, and murdered him. They were sentenced to life imprisonment. Suppose they were sentenced to death. And at the moment that the judge pronounced the death sentence, suppose that young Franks walked into the courtroom What would the condemned say? They would say, you condemned us on the grounds that you had the corpus delicti. Where is the corpus delicti? We've committed no crime. You say, we killed him. We're charged with murder. We can't be guilty of murder. The man is alive. We demand freedom. Now, this is exactly what happened to us. We condemned Christ to death. Our sins nailed him to the cross. And yet on Easter Sunday he appears, and we say, How can we be guilty now of murder? Where is our crime of deicide? 
Where's the corpus delicti? He's alive. We're not guilty. This is Christianity. This is the basis of our faith. So that all who have faith in the risen Christ are saved. And why? Simply because he has paid our debt and we recognize it. We're not dead men. We're men who are alive. And it's suffering love who was crucified. This is the message of Christianity. This is the foundation of our Christian hope. And this is what we'll give in our counseling. This is what we will also give in our confessions. And this is what we'll think about in our meditation. And it's going to take a little bit of effort. As T.S. Eliot put it in one of his poems. There's suffering attached to it, but... Oh, no, I do not have it here. At any rate, the poem of T.S. Eliot is that the sharp knife of the surgeon is actually a compassionate healing. And one feels beneath the surgery the consoling art of the physician who is solving the enigma of the fever chart. So all the trials of our life and the dragging of ourselves daily when we want to play to make the holy hour, this is the surgeon's knife, but it's for our, our healing. And when we have this kind of healing in our souls, then we'll be like the person who came to see a priest and said, when I went in to see him, all of the stars had fallen out of my heaven. And after I talked with them with him, one by one, he put them all back and I had heaven again. But you are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection from Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen as he spoke to a group of priests. And uh, I cannot help but think of his love for the holy hour and how he was pleading once again with his audience to uh, make a holy hour each day. And you could see he was saying to the priest, you know, your confessions will be improved because you'll be able to give uh, good counsel. Uh, your homilies and your talks will be, um, again, I want to say spirit-filled. And uh, it's that idea of listening to the Lord while you're in his presence. And so, uh, the benefits of the holy hour, I mean, Fulton Sheen, um, again, is what I like to say, one of the best writers and the one that um, makes it easy. You know, he gives you that smile and he just says, pray the holy hour. You will be a better person for it. Of course, he not just talked the talk, he walked the walk in that for 62 years, he made a holy hour each day and never missed. And in fact, there's a beautiful book that we put together, uh, a reprint of Fulton Sheen's Holy Hour. 
And so it's available on Amazon. Uh, it is a bestseller. It's simply called The Holy Hour Prayer Book, again by Fulton Sheen. You'll see a beautiful picture of our blessed Lord in the monstrance as the front cover. And uh, again, uh, it has touched tens of thousands of lives um, since we put it out. Um, And again, it was a book that hadn't been republished in years. It was printed in the 1940s. Yet uh, we saw the need to, uh, you know, re-release it. And so uh, it is available. It's quite economical. And it's the meditations that Fulton Sheen recommended that everyone take with them into the holy hour to bring spiritual reading with you. And so, again, it is called the Holy Hour Prayer Book. Uh, Could you not uh, watch with me one hour? And again, available on Amazon all over the world. And so uh, please look that up and order a copy. You'll be glad you did. And again, it's uh, I like to say all the proceeds from uh, that book go towards the support of funding uh, seminarian education and helping them in their journey. And so, uh, again, you're supporting a good cause. But again, the holy hour and how important it is. As our program comes to an end today, I just want to remind you, if you haven't visited our website, bishopsheentoday.com, we'd, uh, of course, love you to do so. Uh, There, there are hundreds of hours of uh, free videos of Fulton Sheen from his television years. Uh, Again, hundreds of hours of audio recordings that are free to download. And, of course, a great selection of books. And it's simply bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, look forward to uh, seeing you again next week. And until that time, may the Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.